Thanks again, worship team, for leading us in worship. Some great songs. We always have great songs, but it hit me again today. And uh, as we're singing to a great God, amen? Well, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer as we, as we jump back into Second Peter. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for inspiring the words that Peter wrote in this epistle for us, Lord. I thank you for them, Lord, because I think we need it. As a church, Lord, as a, as a church in America, we need to know how to be established in your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would be even more established in your truth when we leave today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if, uh, if you'll turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 today. A few weeks ago, <clears throat> we talked about the importance of being established in the truth so that we can be firm in the truth so that we're not toppled over by whatever wave of doctrine that comes our way. Last week, we talked about the source of that truth, and, uh, and, and we found that, it's, that we have to have the right source of truth, of, and we can't believe man-made fables, but we found really a couple of things. We have to believe in the one true God, right? You can't just make up your own, uh, your own God. It doesn't work. We, we learned that last week, uh, last week, that you also have to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. You have to believe in, in Jesus. No man comes unto the Father, but by whom? Jesus Christ. We also have to believe in his scriptures. And and last week we found that you you can't just make up your own version of Jesus Christ, but you have to believe it according to the prophetic word that was confirmed. And so we we have it in in the prophetic word that is confirmed. We have to believe in that. And we also found that we have to interpret those scriptures literally. We have to interpret them in their context as we learned that, that prophecies were never given for private interpretation. We read what it says in context. We can't twist the scripture to make it mean what we want it to mean, but we follow the scripture. And you know what? If you do those things, guess what? You can be established in your life. You can be firm and stable in your life. Amen? This week, as we continue in in chapter 2, we're going to see what happens to to people who do not have their source in, in the truth, people who are not established in the truth. So we'll read them together. I'll read all three verses together, and then we'll... We'll dissect the, these verses a little bit more after that. So let's read Second Peter chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Wow. You read this. These are strong words. And and, and it seems very clearly here that this idea that, that, that God submits to whatever religion we create... And it's just so that he can relate. That's not what we find in these verses, is it? I mean, can you walk away from from reading these verses and and, and come up with that idea? No, instead, what we find here is is an image of a God who punishes those who follow false doctrine. Am I the only one reading that? It's there, and and we see it very clear. And we see that those who follow and, and those who propagate a false doctrine, it says their destruction is on its way. And, uh, and so we have to take a closer look at this and make sure we understand this. 
because this is serious. These are strong words. So let's, let's dissect this a little bit closer. Let's look at, at verse 1. I want to focus on the first half of, of, of the verse here. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people. By the way, that's past tense. There were, past tense, also false prophets among the people, even as there will be, future tense, false teachers among you. So here we, we find that there's, there's actually a history of false doctrine. This isn't something that was new in the New Testament. There have always been people who have tried to pervert the truth. Isn't that true? All you have to do is turn on the TV these days and you find there are people trying to pervert the truth and, uh, and spin things to their benefit. And, uh, and this is what we, we, uh, we see here as well. There's a history of false doctrine. And he goes, first in the Old Testament, he said there were what in the Old Testament? There were false prophets. And he goes on to say that, that what these false prophets did is that they would secretly bring in destructive heresies. And then he takes this Old Testament image of, him, uh, of, the, of, the, of the false prophets who were bringing in destructive heresies. And then he says, now in the New Testament, what you're going to find, they're going to be false what? False teachers. They're going to be false teachers. And what are they going to do? Just like in the Old Testament... In the New Testament, which is where we live right now, there are going to be false teachers who are also going to bring in, uh, secretly bring in destructive heresies. So we ought to be on the watch for this because this is Peter writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying this is going to happen to the church. So do you think we should be watchful for that? Absolutely. And, and so here we look at, at this, and there's three concepts here when you look at secretly bringing in destructive heresies. There's three concepts here. First, there's the, the concept of, of heresy. Uh, the concept of heresy. Now, what is a heresy when you think about it? Uh, and what is a heretic? Uh, you know, we know a heretic is a person who believes in heresies, right? But, but what is a heresy? A heresy is simply this. It's any doctrine that contradicts an essential tenet of the faith. And others, we, there's room for disagreement uh, uh, in, in the church for some things, right? We don't always agree on everything. That's why we can have some lively theological debates about things. And, and, and we don't have to agree on everything, right? Why? Because not everything is an essential tenet of the faith. Uh, for example, there are brothers in Christ. They're, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. that They believe that there are three ordinances. See, we believe that there are two, right? We believe that there's baptism, which we just saw. And communion, which we just had not that long ago. So we believe that there's two. There are some who believe there are three. They say foot washing is an ordinance. Now, it's not because of some weird theological background that they're coming up with. It's just when Jesus said at the Last Supper, he said, as often as you do these things, we think that that means the immediate context, the, the communion, right? So they said, well, these things, well, the first thing he did when they came in is he washed their feet. So okay, are you willing to... to to befriend someone who believes that? Of course we are. Those are not the essentials of the faith, right? Those are not the essentials. We don't say, oh, then you might not be safe because you wash people's feet. By the way, I'm glad I don't have to wash your feet. I've seen some of your feet. (laughs) And maybe that's affected my theology. I hope not. I hope I can build a biblical argument, right? But, uh, but So there are things that we can disagree on. But a heresy is something where if you actually believe it, it it changes the essence. That's why it's called an essential tenet. It changes the essence of what the faith actually is. So if a person comes in and says, well, we don't believe that Jesus is is the Son of God. Mm, Time out. Then it's not Christianity. 
Or, or like we heard last week about the doctrine that says, says well, God submits to any religion you create, so Jesus says one way to God. The moment you say that, then when Jesus says that I and the Father are one, and when Jesus says no man comes unto the Father but by me, none of that's true anymore. It makes him out a liar. That means the essence of Christianity would not be the same. Does that make sense? So heresy is any doctrine that contradicts the essential tenets of the faith. And he, and he says that people are going to teach these things in the church. Uh, the second word that we find or that describes this heresy, it's the word is destructive. It says they're secretly going to bring in destructive heresies. So what do we mean by destructive? It just simply means that the doctrines will tear down. They cause desolation. They cause problems. They, they're, going, they're going to cause problems. Um, and and we see that these doctrines are destructive. For example, if we take the one I just mentioned um, in, in universalism, there's a doctrine that says eventually everyone's going to get to heaven. Whatever religion they use or lack of religion they use, eventually everyone's going to get to heaven. Is that a destructive doctrine? Why is it destructive? It's destructive because if a person thinks, oh, hey, I'm on my way there anyway, then what do I have to do? And so they don't seek out God, and they don't seek the answers, they don't respond, and when people confront them on, on something, and like, who cares, because I'm on my way anyway, and, and big deal. And that is destructive, because then they do not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And without accepting Jesus Christ, what does John tell us? It says, then you are condemned already. And, uh, and so this is a destructive doctrine. And in the, in the context here, it, it says that even denying the Lord who bought them. I mean, these destructive doctrines will come to the point where you deny who Jesus Christ actually is. You deny the Lord who bought you. And how did he buy you, by the way? On the cross. And so if you believe in any religion, then guess what? Jesus didn't have to die. Right? Um, You could have created a religion where he he didn't have to. um, If we could create this idea of destructive heresies... And, and Peter says, they will come. He doesn't say they might come. He says, they will come into the church. The third point of this idea is um, um, the word secretly. Let me uh, skip ahead here. To the word uh, secretly. The idea behind this word, when he says they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, the idea here is that people won't even know what's happening. You know, they will come in and they will sound good at first. And they're going to sound, they're going to use a lot of the language that we would use as Christians. And, and then they'll start changing definitions of things and, and, move, and, and slowly moving things from, from truth to heresy. And, and they're going to come in and you're not even going to realize that it's happening because it's so slow. It's, you've heard the illustration of the frog in the kettle pot. You know, if you throw a frog in a hot kettle pot, it's going to hop out, right? But if you put it in a cool kettle pot and you heat it up, it will stay in there. Why? Because it's such a slow, gradual change that it doesn't realize that he's being destroyed. And that's the nature of heresies that are going to be brought into the church. That we, we don't, won't even know that they're happening many, in many cases. And what's the result of these? Let's continue to read the second half of verse 1. It says, but, but there will also be false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Do you realize how many times we find some derivative of the word destroy or destructive in this text? Just in these three verses, you know, four times we find. And so what we find here is 
um, the, the, the doctrines are destructive. And so what's going to happen to them? They're going to receive and bring on themselves destruction. And so it makes sense. Why? Because God is a just God. Sometimes we forget that. Is God a merciful God? You bet he is. Is he also a just God? Yes, he is. And we ought not forget either one of those two, two truths. God is a just God. And so he's saying, you bring in destructive heresies to my church, and I am going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you destruction. And you're bringing it up onto yourselves. By the way, we all are either going to receive justice or we're going to receive mercy, right? And that depends on how we respond to what Jesus did on the cross for us. And that's what makes the difference. By the way, if, if you think it's a good thing to receive justice, it's not. Because we, see, we're, we're, we fail. We, we fail all the time. So here we see the result of this false doctrine is that God is going to bring upon us swift destruction. And so in this text, we see that God is comparing what happened in the Old Testament to what is going to be happening in the New Testament time period in which we're living right now. And so let's look at the Old Testament. I'm just going to use one example of, of the false prophets. And, and you know the story of Elijah, right? Elijah came to a point where he was the only, he was the, the last of the prophets of Yahweh, the last of the prophets of the Lord. And, and the people started following these false prophets. And in this case, they were the false prophets of Baal. By the way, Baal worship is horrid. It is horrid. It's a, a, it's a sex cult, so there a lot of sex involved in it. Because of that, there are a lot of babies, a lot of unwanted babies. And so part of the religion became uh, the sacrificing of those babies to their God. Horrible stuff. And, uh, and so this is what, what Israel fell into. And you think, how on earth could they go from the Ten Commandments and the plagues and seeing, seeing the, the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire? And I, how can they go from that to thinking that this was right? It's a slow, gradual process. And that's exactly what, what they did. Um, if you want to keep a finger in Second Peter, because we'll be back, um, you can take a look at First Kings chapter 18. I just want to read a, a portion of this story. This is a fascinating text. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 through 24, we find this deal being made. Uh, it says, so Ahab, who was the king at the time, you might remember his wife Jezebel, um, uh, who's named after Baal. Jezebel is how it's literally pronounced. Um, um, she was his, uh, the, the wife of Ahab, and she had encouraged so much of this Baal worship that it became the national Religion. So, um, so now we see this, this coming up. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came uh, to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him with not a word. So here, we, by the way, this idea of... Well, just every religion, again, we see, no, you either follow God or you follow the other. You can't follow them both, right? We see it very clearly, one or the other. Verse 22, says, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. goes on to say, Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. Then you call in the name 
of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he's God. So all the people answered and said, deal. That's my translation, right? It is well spoken. Sounds good. Sounds fair, right? And you guys know the story, right? So you have the prophets of, of Baal, 450, and then you have, uh, you have one lone prophet of Yahweh. And they, they prepare these two altars, and then you get the, 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 the Baal worshipers. They're all together, and they're calling on the Lord. But can, can Baal burn the altar? No, not at all. And so they start cutting themselves. That's part of their religion as well. And you see that in a lot of, of, of dark religions. They're cutting themselves, begging their Lord. And the whole time, you know what Elijah's doing over here? He's trash-talking them. You, you, you read it. He's trash-talking them. Hey, where's Baal? Maybe he's on vacation. Right? Maybe you have to cry a little louder. He, he's egging them on because he had such confidence in his God. He, he's... he's He's, by the way, there's a little play on words that you don't catch in English. Because when he's saying, where's Baal? You know how that sounds in Hebrew? Jezebel. Right? So he's calling her out on this. He's calling her out. And, uh, and you know the story? Baal doesn't answer because he can't. Right? He can't. He's false. He's a man-made, cunningly devised fable that we just read about. Then we find in, uh, in verse 38 through 49, we read, it says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. This is Elijah's. And the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench, because remember, he doused it with water just to prove God's ability there. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Here's another little Hebrew input there. You know how that sounds in Hebrew? Eliyah, Eliyah, which is Elijah. Elijah. So here you have Elijah crying, Jezebel, where's Baal? And then you have the, the people, when they see God prove his power, they're saying, Elijah, 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 which is Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Pretty cool, huh? And, and, you, see, and you see God show, show his way. Now, I say all of this in case you don't know the story, but I say all of this because we'll look at how it ended up. Look at verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the, to the brook Kishon and executed them there. By the way, this was in obedience to God. This sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But this is the reality. And God was saying, just as in the Old Testament, you, you, you are a false prophet and you claim that you are speaking on behalf of, of the Almighty and you give false doctrine, you are going to get what you deserve. And in this case, that's execution. He's saying in the New Testament, when false teachers come in and they teach the, the heresies, destructive heresies, what are they doing? They're storing up for themselves destruction. Is that, that's powerful, isn't it? And, and, and that's what he's saying. The, you're, this is what's taking place. And it will be no different. The false teachers are hoarding up for themselves destruction. And by the way, all those Baal worships, they had the majority on their side. And we tend to think we're right when we have the majority, don't we? And yet, he was the one lone prophet of Yahweh. And it doesn't matter if the majority is on your side. It matters if you're on the side of God. Amen. Period. That's it. And, uh, and so we see this. In seed form. We'll talk about that even more as we get a little bit further into the text here. 
So false teachers are going to get what they deserve, but also not before they do a lot of damage. Because look what it says in verse 2. It says, of, of 2 Peter 2. It says, and many will follow their destructive ways. Many will follow their destructive ways. That's the saddest part of, of the text today. When I read that, many are going to follow. That's this idea of droves of, of Christians, because he's not talking Old Testament now. He's saying, this is future times. He's talking about the church, people who call themselves Christians. Droves of Christians are going to fall for heresies. Wow. That, that's amazing. And, you know, sometimes I think when it comes to our doctrine, I think we feel like there's a safety in numbers. I think it's human nature, isn't it? It's like, well, well, if everyone believes this, it must be true, right? Uh, and you've probably seen the ash experiment where they, where they have a, um, an elevator and they have people that already preset on the elevator and they all turn and, look and face this way. And so then they have a camera and then they open it up and, a, and some stranger comes on. He gets on and what does he do? He sees everyone looking that way, so he turns and he looks the same way, right? Why? Because it's human nature to follow the crowd, and, and, uh, and here we see, what's the crowd doing? The crowd are believing in destructive doctrines. The, 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 the crowd is going to fall, go in the wrong direction. And I think sometimes we think, well, well there's safety in numbers. And, well, everyone at my church believes. Or, or we say, oh, well, many of the great theologians say, or, or even all my pastors say. And I'm telling you, don't trust me. That sounds horrible for a pastor to tell you, don't trust me. But don't trust me, don't trust any other pastor, don't trust any other person over the word of God. None of us. No, no single one. Always weigh what we say through this. And, and filter, filter what we say through this word. Why? Because being established in the truth is not listening to me. It's reading this. And if I say what this says, then that can help establish in your truth. If I stray from this, then I'm pulling you in the wrong direction. Does that make sense? And, uh, and so here's the point. Here's the point. Truth is not up for a vote. Truth is not up for a vote. It doesn't matter how many people follow something that doesn't make it right. Does that make sense? It, it's, the nature of, it's the nature of truth. Leo uh, Tolstoy, even though I wouldn't agree with everything he said in his confessions, he wrote, wrong does not cease to be wrong because the majority share in it. Isn't that true? I like a better version of this. It's an expanded version by a, by a brother in Christ. Uh, and, and Rick Warren puts it this way. He said, a lie does not become truth. Wrong does not become right. And evil does not become good just because it's accepted by the majority. It is so true. And we see this concept all through scriptures. Even when the law was being given, because here you find absolute truths... And not just absolute truth, but absolute morality, right? That's, that's not politically correct to talk about, but absolute morality given in, in Exodus. And what does he say in Exodus 23 too? He says, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. And when you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Wow. It's important, isn't it? Because oftentimes we go wrong when we follow the crowd instead of following our Bibles. And that's what gets us in the wrong direction. And so it doesn't matter how many people believe in a lie. If it's a lie, it's still a lie. 
can't vote something to be true. But we see that idea even in America. I hate to say it. We see it in America where, where if, we, if we vote something to be moral, then we can all convince ourselves it's moral, and that's not true. You know, historically, they did that with slavery, didn't they? You know, there were votes on it, and, and, and people rested in the thought of, of, well, you know, everybody's doing it. Everybody thinks it's right. It was wrong even when the majority said it was right. It was morally wrong because there is such thing as absolute truth. Amen? And the absolute truth is from God's word that says every human being was made in the image of God. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what part of the globe you were born. What matters is that you're a human being and you're made in the image of God and you have value because of that. And, and so when you're rooted in the truth, then you contradict what the, what the majority says many times. And that's exactly what William Wilberforce uh, was, was doing. In fact, I was talking about that with a friend yesterday. And uh, as he, he contradicted the majority. Why? Because his, his, his establishment, his, his foundation was a truth in the word of God. And that's what makes the difference. Because the majority gets it wrong a lot, don't they? I mean, the majority, I mean, remember, for how long was bloodletting considered uh, the, the cure-all for everything? And even though the majority of doctors said it was right, people died from it. And we find that considered true all the time. So here's the bottom line. Don't assume that your doctrine is correct because other people believe it. Why? Because what did we just read? Many will follow their destructive ways. But it goes on to say, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Wow, this is a, a powerful statement when you think about this. We, we understand. Many of the, 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 the droves of Christians are going to teach destructive and fall for destructive heresies to the point that what happens here? The few who follow the way of truth, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be ridiculed by the majority. Wow. Imagine that Peter is predicting that the church is going to get so bad, so caught up in these destructive heresies, that if you teach the word of truth, the rest are going to gang up on you and make fun of you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to blaspheme you. Uh, the, the, blaspheme has, the, uh, the word blaspheme has two parts to it. It means to speak, and the word for ill means to speak ill of somebody. They're going to speak ill of you if you teach the truth. And I'm telling you, if you speak the truth, you're going to become part of the minority. And the majority is going to point fingers and they're going to ridicule you. They're going to blaspheme you. I, you know, I don't want to sound like a downer here, but this is the reality of things. Have you ever felt that at work? Or have you ever felt ashamed to speak the truth because you knew they would ridicule you? Unfortunately, I think we fall into that many times as, as, as well. But here we see that there's going to be so much pressure to conform to the thinking of the majority that Christians or so-called Christians are at least going to fall for these false doctrines in order to be avoid being ridiculed. And the result is that the world starts imitating the church, or the, the church starts imitating the world. And if I think historically, um, I, if I'd say in my lifetime, I can see one major example that this has happened in, and I can see another one that's beginning, the one that's, that's coming up right now. But if we were to look at major examples, I'd say the, the major example that I've seen in my lifetime is in the doctrine of evolution. Right. It's the doctrine of evolution. Uh, what we see here is, is that, we're, in fact, we're told that everyone believes it, right? In fact, when you talk to people uh, uh, about it, well, why do you believe in evolution? 
the answer is almost always consensus. Well, this is what all the scientists say. Right? This is what, what everyone's saying. And they, they call it consensus. Um, or they, they'll throw out something that they heard in high school or college about carbon dating or something like that. You know, so it's always either consensus or science. And, um, and quite frankly, I'm not that impressed with either of them. Uh, and, and, and there's reasons why. In fact, when I speak, when, whenever I speak to an evolutionist and I ask them for the basis of their belief, it's usually met with carbon dating. Has anyone else heard that one? How can you believe that the universe is not that old when we have science that says it's, it's much older? Carbon dating, they always throw that out there. Um, in fact, I like to play with them a little bit. I say, oh, you mean like when they, they take a rock and they carbon date it and they say it's millions of years old? Yeah, yeah, like that. Did you know that you can't carbon date a rock? And, and, and I've, I've actually, I said that one time to a guy that this was his major in college. He's like, what do you mean you can't carbon date a rock? What? Like, it has to be a carbon-based form of life, right? It has to be a plant or an animal. You can't carbon date a rock. It, it, it doesn't happen. And in fact, I studied the science of it. You want to know the science of it? Do you care if I get a little deep for a second here? Here's the science of it. If you really want to look at, at carbon dating... Carbon dating is done in what they call half-lives. What that means, so follow me for a second. If you catch this little concept, it'll, it'll make sense. Half-life means how long it takes for the carbon atoms of, a, of an object, but once it dies, those carbon atoms start to get lazy, right? Carbon atoms. You go from carbon-13 to carbon-14, right? Lazy enough, they, they allow an extra electron in. So that's basically what it means. So carbon-13 turns into carbon-14. Over time, a half-life is how long does it take for half of the carbon cells to get lazy, right? Uh, then, th- then we're going to have what we call a margin of error. Well, you can guess that, and there's a margin of error. So, here's the reality: one half-life is, and I'm going to use round numbers. It, it, I'm going to say 2,500 years. In reality, it's 2,400 and something. I don't remember exactly, but 2,000. 500 years. In other words, it takes 2,500 years for half of the carbon uh, atoms to get lazy. Make sense? Are you you with me? All right. The margin of error is about plus or minus 200 years. So so that means if you have something that has been alive for 2,500 years or so, you can carbon date that, that, and you'll be usually within 200 years of the correct date. That sounds pretty good, right? Here's the problem. If you understand the map, what it, the, that for every half-life, the margin of error doubles, right? So the further it is, the more other factors can impact it, and it can be plus or minus, and that number grows. So what that means is, if you're talking two half-lives, or 5,000 years, then now you have a margin of error of 400 years. That still doesn't sound too bad. But you're adding half-lives and you're multiplying your margin of error. So what happens is, by three half-lives, 7,500 years, your margin of error is 800 years. By four half-lives, or 10,000 years, now you've got a 1,600-year margin of error. So by the time you get to five, then it becomes a 3,200-year difference. By the time, if you go continue to that, by the time you get to eight half-lives, or 20,000 years, your margin of error is 25,600 years. So anytime someone tells you they carbon dated something that's more than 20,000 years old, what you're going to find is that the margin of error is larger than the number they're giving you. I went to a creation-evolution debate at Columbia University. So this is not like 
at Answers in Genesis. This is at Columbia University. And, and the guy was saying, well, how do you say this? And, and he, he dated, a, he dated a, a tree that was found in a rock. And he says, this is found to be three million years old. So how can you say that the world isn't even three million years old? And so the creationist, I love it, he went to his briefcase and he pulled it and he said, I actually have the results of that test. They ran it three times. One time, it said that it was three million years old. Another time, it said it was 2.1 million years old. And one time, it said it was negative 10,000 years old. Same tree, same place, three tests. And so, you think, so you, if I, you read the textbooks that averages those. It says, but the reality is, science is not supporting, and it was great, because it it, the last, the, the quote of the, the day, the last thing the, uh, the evolutionist said on, on his way, he said, well, I guess I'm walking out of here like a dog with a tail between my legs. He said that. He said, but I refuse to believe that, that, some, some Jewish carpenter claims to be God and says, all you need is love, and I'm supposed to believe that he's the son of God. And the creationist said, I, I'm sorry for my, my colleague, but I think he's confused Jesus Christ for John Lennon. <laughs> but if you look at just science, you just look at the science of it. And, and I could go on and on. I could get into this sometime. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe take a Sunday night and talk about the science of it. Um, but, but this idea that, you know, you can... You, you go to these charts, and what you do is, is since they can't date things that old, what they do is very simple. They, they go to their charts and say, well, how long would it take this to have evolved? And then they give you that number, right? So you have to assume a lev- evolution is true in order to believe that evolution is confirmed. You know what they call that? Circular reasoning. And uh, it, it doesn't make sense. So then you ask the question, then why do so many scientists believe it? Why do so many scientists believe it? And you know why? Because everyone else believes it. In fact, what you find too is that most universities want you to assume evolution is true before they show you any evidence. You want to be a student? You have to start with it. Anyone see God's Not Dead, the movie? Remember? God's Not Dead. Now, it wasn't based on a true story. It was based on multiple true stories. For me, the most impactful part of the movie was the credits. I know that I'm a geek, right? I watch the credits. <laughs> I'm looking at the credits, and it's going through case after case after case after case where this is happening in our schools today. Where, oh, you have to start with the assumption that we're right about everything. Then you can learn. Mm-mm, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so we find that. The second reason is any studies that contradict the theory of evolution get disregarded. Oh, this can't be true. You must have done something wrong. It gets disregarded. Or scientists that find contradictory evidence lose their funding. You see that all the time. Where if you come up with evidence that, that contradicts, there was a great study that, that proved that our atmosphere had to be less than 30,000 years old. They proved that it was 12,000 years in, in, uh, or less. And they, said they, they had scientists come in. They tried to discredit it. When they couldn't, they just said, we don't know what went wrong, but something had to go wrong here. And they just disregard it. And I'll tell you what, when the few who make it through this grid say, oh, we have con- consensus. And I, anyone else not impressed by that? I, I don't know, about, but I'm not impressed by the majority. I don't, I don't find it. It's like a communist dictator who has an election, right, and, says, and has the right to throw out any votes he doesn't like and then celebrates the unanimous vote that he got, right? It means nothing, 
It means nothing. And yet, this is what's going on in our world today. And people follow it. And it goes back to what Rick Warren said. A lie does not become truth. A wrong does not become right. And evil does not become good just because it's accepted by the majority. However, what we do find is that many churches and Christian institutions are following the majority instead of following God's word. And that's what's happening. And we see that. There's a study by Answers in Genesis they, they found 264 Bible colleges and universities that they could find in the United States that would respond to their short questionnaire. 264. Um, most of which of these, at the inception of the universities or colleges, they believed in the biblical account of creation. Make sense? So that's what we're talking about. Out of those, how many would you guess have rejected the biblical account of creation? What would you guess? I mean, here's the answer. And this is by their own admission. These schools, they have a list of all the schools. You should go check it out. Answers in Genesis. They have a list of it. But 197 of those have rejected the biblical account of creation. That leaves only 67 out of of 264 Bible colleges that said, boy, when when we have the the majority of the scientific community versus the Bible... We're going to side with the Bible, only 67. That's roughly 25%. I'm telling you, folks, Peter was right. Peter was right. The majority are going to lose their foundation of biblical truth and even ridicule those who are of the way of truth. That's what we read in Scripture. It's what we're seeing today in reality. And, and I, I asked permission to share this. I was talking with a young man yesterday, um, and, and he's been going from church to church, trying to find a church home and, and, and trying to grow in his spiritual life. We had a great talk yesterday, and, and, uh, and one of the things they shared, shared with me broke my heart, actually, but he said after visiting several churches, the one thing that he heard multiple times was, your problem is that you're taking the Bible too seriously. Isn't that sad? Your problem is that you're taking the Bible too seriously. And, and, and he's, he's in the room with us today. And uh, um, I, appreciate, I appreciate his presence. And I appreciate a man, by the way, who says, I'm going to find a church that's preaching the Bible. Amen? And, and that's where we have to be. And we've seen this. This is just one example. This, this doctrine of evolution. Why? Because they've got to try to explain some way for our existence without God. And so they come up with a theory. This is the one that I've seen in my lifetime. You know what I think we're beginning to see and is, is the next one? This is the big test. And I, and, and I, I know this is not politically correct to even talk about, but it's, it's the, the doctrine of homosexuality. It's the doctrine of homosexuality. Right now, we're beginning to see the shift amongst those who call themselves Christians. It pains me to say, but even my first cousin is a pastor in a church. This is all they're about. That's the whole reason the church exists, is to promote the homosexual lifestyle. Wow. But we're seeing it in Christianity. You might be familiar with a group called Everyday Sunday. It's a Christian Christian group. Trey, uh, Trey Pearson is one of the members of the band. And... And here's the situation. He was raised as a conservative Christian. He's married, two kids, and he's discovered that he started having some same-sex attraction. And so he talked to his pastor about it, and he was convinced by his pastor that he should divorce his wife, leave his kids, embrace his homosexual lifestyle, and continue to write and perform Christian music. 
And this pastor, by the way, was a pastor of a church not far from here. In Grand Rapids, the Mecca of Christianity, as some call it, right? This is where our world is coming. By the way, I have to say, if I'm going to say this, I'm going to say, I have to bring up a little caveat, if that's okay. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Uh, Before anyone throws stones at me, let me explain that. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Acting out on that is. Just like if a man notices that women are attractive or a woman notices that men are... That's not a sin. Acting out on that is sin. So acting out on it is sin, and, and, uh, and I'm telling you, there is hope. And just because you struggle with the temptation... In fact, uh, I, I had a young man come to me in, in Costa Rica when I was there who said, I want to get saved, but I have attraction towards men. And God can't accept me that way. And I said, buddy, it's come as you are. Not, not, not get your life in order and then come to God. It's come as you are. He says, yeah, but, you know, and then he did. He, he accepted Christ. He said, but I still have these attractions. I said, don't worry about that. Worry about what you do with that attraction. You know, and it's kind of like your, your decision-making, your mind is the, is, the, is the locomotive of your train. Your emotions are the caboose. If you have a long history of doing things the wrong way, then it might take some time after the locomotive turns before the caboose starts to turn, right? It makes sense. But don't worry about that. Just worry about... And, and, and so he would struggle, and he would call me. He would, he would Skype me. Uh, and uh, here at the church, I'd have conversations with him through Skype. And he'd say, but I'm still struggling with this. I'm still struggling with this. And I said, don't worry about it. Celebrate that you didn't act on it. This is a celebration. Right? And, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm happy to tell you that right now, he, he called me not that long ago on Skype and said, hey, I just want you to know, I haven't had any same-sex attraction in a long time. He says, and I have had some attractions to some of the ladies, and not for their looks, but for their character. Imagine that. He's studying right now to be a pastor. Isn't that awesome? I mean, there is hope. So I want to share that too, because I don't want to condemn sinners. That's not what, that's God's job. That's not my job. I want to condemn sin, and we have to do that. But there's hope for sinners. And that's a good thing, because I'm one of them. Right? And, uh, and so I, just, I have to say that in there, uh, that, that that's an important thing to understand. But what we're seeing and what we ought not see in the church is this acceptance of sin. And it, where it becomes, as we were talking, I was talking with my friend yesterday, it's come as you are and stay as you are. That's a wrong message. Come as you are and let God turn you into something better. Let God turn you into a masterpiece. That's what it's really all about. And, and we see that there is hope. In 1 Corinthians 6, we read this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, Paul didn't pull, pull his punches. He was telling people, you're not, you're not going to heaven. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drug, drunkards, nor uh, revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. <laughs> Strong. He says, but here's the key. As such were some of you, past tense, some of you were those things. And when you, go to, when you come to God and, you, and you, lay that, you lay your sins before God and you confess your sins before God, he changes you. You're a new creature. Does that make sense? And, and old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And it says, but you were washed. 
but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So by the way, if you're, if you're here today and you're struggling with, with any sin, whether it's same-sex, addiction, or same-sex attraction or, or you're struggling with, uh, with um, substance abuse or you're struggling with, with greed or you're, whatever it might be, you can come to the altar and lay it before God and he will change you. Amen. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And when we preach a gospel that says he will forgive your sins, but don't worry about him cleansing you, that's half the gospel. And, and we don't get it. So indeed, poor doctrine leads to poor discernment, and poor discernment indeed leads to the participation in the acts of depravity, to where now we even praise those things in, in many of these churches. But what do we read in verse 3? By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words, for a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. Or is this going to sound good? It's going to be deceptive. And they're going to be able to, to say these things in such a way that it just sounds good. It's trying to convince you to think the way that they're thinking. But judgment is coming. And just because God isn't immediate with his judgment, just like he wasn't in the Old Testament, he let them do their thing, he let them make their decisions. A day came where judgment would come. And so by application for this day, I just say this, but when you're tempted to cave into the majority, remember these three things. Number one, truth is not determined by what you believe to be true. Truth is not determined. That's what we learned last week. You can't make up a fable and start believing it. You can't carve an image and worship it, right? You can't do it. It doesn't or does work. Number two, truth is not determined by what the majority thinks. That's what we see this week. Don't worry about what the majority thinks of it, but truth is, is found only in the literal interpretation of God's word. Amen? And that's why I hope we understand. And there's so much for us here if we'll let that, let that take root in our lives. In just a moment, I'll give you a chance to respond, and I'm going to ask you uh, two, just two simple questions today for, for self-reflection. Number one, in what ways have you allowed in what ways have you allowed your doctrine to slip because you have been listening to the majority instead of studying God's word? What ways? Well, most people are doing this, so I guess it's okay. And most people believe that. I guess that's okay. No. And, and the second question is this. If the scriptures really are your source of truth, you know, the source of truth that establishes you, do your Bible study habits reflect that? Or is, or is Bible study for you something, well, oh, I go to church. I listen to the Bible for 40 minutes, maybe a little longer today, sorry. <laughs> but I listen to it for, for 40 minutes a week. Is that it? Oh, but not in summer because we've got to camp every weekend, right? I'm, just reality sometimes. And I'm not against camping, but I think sometimes we get to a point where our, our view of God's word is so shallow that we can do with it or we can do without it. If it's there, yeah, we'll listen to it. But if it's not, when we, should, we ought to be seeking it out. We, I mean, we ought to get up in the morning and say, I wonder what God's going to teach me today. What's he going to Let's get into his word. Oh, what's this saying? I don't know what this means. Let me call some of my friends, see what they think about this. And, hey, what does this say? You know, do you know, get, get in the group. You just talk about it. Why? Because we ought to be hungry for God's word. If we understood how the truth of God's word established us, I am convinced our study habits would be completely different. And so it's easy to say, in theory, this is how we should be. In theory, this is... But in practice, are we studying God's word? 
Are we doing that? If you don't know how, let me know. We'll teach you. We'll teach you how to, how to interpret God's word. We'll teach you all the background information so you know what's going on and things will make sense. You'll understand the historical context, the grammatical context. We'll teach you. But you have to have that hunger and thirst for God's word. In just a moment, I'm, we're going to sing, uh, sing a song. And I, and I hope the message is clear today. That I want you to come as you are. But I want you to leave changed. I want, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And if the Lord's spoken to your heart in any way today, whatever God's doing, let him do business in your heart today. And, and don't worry about the majority, because I think the reason why people oftentimes don't, don't d- deal with God in the moment, because truth is, once you walk out, it's, it's very easy to, to forget what you, what you were doing. But when you take the moment right then, right here, right now, to do business with God, you're more likely to carry that decision throughout Monday to Saturday as well. Does that make sense? So that's why, that's why every Sunday, pretty much, I try to give you an opportunity to respond. But I think the reason why people don't respond many times because they look around. The majority's not. So it's not what I'm supposed to do. Forget the majority if the Lord's working in your heart. And don't even do it because of my... I'm not, I don't want to pressure anyone to come forward. But if the Lord's working in your heart today, then respond. Do business with him right now and just pray. And, and say, Lord, this is, what I, this is what you did to me today. This is what you're doing in my heart. What do you want me to do about it? Do business with him today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and we're going to sing a song in a minute, but I want to pray for you as we prepare our hearts for the invitation. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. Lord, you convicted me so many times, even this week as I was studying your word. And Lord, I just pray that right now you'd work in our hearts, that we would put away our fear of what other people think. And if you are truly working in the hearts of anyone here, I pray that you would bring them forward on their knees, Lord, so that they would just do, do business with you. And I pray this in Christ's name.